maybe not have the the dream crusher in your life, <laughs> but someone that you can go to and say here, like someone that's going to be real with you and honest about your idea, not in a negative way, but somebody, a good sounding board, looking for that person in your life, whether that's another, like I am incredibly blessed because I've got a couple founders that I just reached out to on LinkedIn and I said, Hey, you're where I want to be in the auto space can we chat? Right. And they've been great at, and it's interesting because they're very diametrically opposed founders of companies in their philosophy of growth and that stuff. So I've got two, but to be honest with you and say, that's not a good idea, or that's a great idea. And here's why, because there are holes that we all have, even as, you know, multi-time founders, there are things you miss that if you have somebody else, just like throw back at you, that would be my advice is, Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, a serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as a CEO and founder of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com. We're always here to help. Now, today we have another great guest. I say that about all guests, and I feel the same way about all guests. They <laughs> are all great guests, but we have Stephen uh, Granger on. And Stephen Granger is the founder of Recall Rabbit, and he'll type, or talk a little bit about that throughout his journey. But to give you a b- brief introduction, went to college for about a year, um, didn't like school, and wanted to be a professional cyclist, I think. married to, And he was married to an Olympian, which is, sounds cool, which I hopefully it is cool. Uh, but got into sales <laughs> after cycling. That didn't work out. Became an entrepreneur um, uh, for a, a long time and had that kind of entrepreneur spirit. Started a business with a friend in the 90s, um, built it for a period of time, didn't work out in the long run, Um, moved over to being a recruiter until the dot-com bust, Uh, started selling cars, which just sounds like fun. I love cars, so I'm always a car guy, Um, but then I didn't like that, moved over to car accessories, Uh, moved on over to Carfax for a period of time, went through life changes and left, did another startup, did an accelerator, raised a bit of money, uh, learned what not to do and what hopefully to do a bit, Um, shut it down after uh, doing that for a period of time, um, went to back to work, worked as a manager at a dealership, saw a problem, which led now to where his business is at today. So with that much as a brief introduction, welcome <laughs> on the podcast, Stephen. Thank you. Yeah, that was very good. Just one small correction. I didn't right. marry the Olympic athlete. I was engaged to one. So, oh, yeah. I got it wrong. That's right. That's got, right. she, if she ever saw the podcast, through. she would be very clear about that. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Well, I'm still interested to see yeah. what it was like to be engaged to an Olympian. Yes. So we'll, we'll have to talk about that. Yeah. But uh, as, uh, as we dive into things, you know, I gave that brief introduction, kind of went through everything, but take us a bit back to what, you know, when things started, uh, yeah. when you started out in college and kind of how your journey got started there. Yeah. So, yeah, you touched on it. Um, the uh, college experience I realized was not for me. I went to a very, very small liberal arts school in Missouri. Um, I used to say it was kind of like high school with fraternities. There were 786 total students. Uh, At one point, it was an all-male school. There was another school in the town that was an all-female school. So there were more technically students in the vicinity. But yeah, it was not not a very exciting experience for me. So um, I had raced bicycles in high school, loved it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to live the dream. Go try and do it. And so, yeah, after a year of school, I 
moved, packed up my things, moved to the mountains in California near Lake Tahoe. I had a friend from high school whose family owned a cabin and let me live there for no rent. And that's when I met the Olympic swimmer who she was the world champion. She was a synchronized swimmer. She was the world champion at what she did and then eventually won a gold medal in Olympics. And meeting somebody like that, I realized whatever she had that made her the world champion at what she did, I did not have. <laughs> it was kind of a soul crushing experience, <laughs> but a life lesson. And yeah, and kind of got into sales after that and started well, my one career. Question, just yeah. because that is interesting, both on the, so she did, or she got a, a gold, which is cool. You know, and were you yeah. engaged dating at the time when yeah. she got the gold or did? Okay. Yeah, uh, no, right before the gold medal, the Olympics, uh, it's kind of a funny story. So I broke off the engagement. Uh, my mom ended up going to the Olympics because it was a neat experience. And she she always tells a story. It was very funny to be there, <laughs> even though her son no longer dated the Olympian. But yeah, yes, we were dating during that whole time. Um, now, just And I'm just curious, on the yeah. Olympian, are they crazy focused and hyper, you know, yes. half, and almost yeah. have to be out of sales, and that's So, so this will give you a good story of one of the moments where I was like, wow, okay. Uh, so she would get up every morning at like five o'clock, go to the pool, swim from 6 a.m. till six at night, six days a week, and then go to junior college at night. And one day I asked her like, you know how most of us, we wake up and we're like, I just don't have it today. I'm gonna call in sick. And then you kind of work through that and you power through and you're like, all right, I'm going to the office. I asked her one day if she ever feels like that. And she looked at me with a look on her face, like I might as well ask her if she eats babies whole. Like she just was, and she said, that thought has literally never entered my brain. And I, I remember so distinctly going, well, I guess that's why you're the world champion and I'm selling copiers, right? So yeah, she definitely, and it, it used to, I used to think about it too. Like there's a reason Michael Jordan's Michael Jordan, mm. right? He's mm -hmm. different. If he wasn't, we'd all be like Michael Jordan, but we're not, right? So yeah, there is a different mentality to people who are high-level achievers. And and it was really funny because her coach was a very big negative reinforcement person. Mm. And she would try that with me. And I'd be like, yeah, I just hear I'm a loser. You're not like really motivating me. <laughs> and she thought that like work was going to be like that. And I kept telling her like, no one is ever going to talk to you in a business environment the way your coach talks to you. I remember she got like her first job and reached out to me. It was like, I have to apologize to you because you were right. Like work is so easy. And I was like, yes, that's what I kept telling you. <laughs> no, like your, your life's going to be way easier after this. So, yeah. Oh, that's funny. So no, that, that is a good story. Now one, yeah. so now you said in, in your own, in your own words or paraphrasing your own words, you know, you dated the Olympian or friend were engaged for a period of time, didn't work out but you also kind of had your soul crushed, so to speak, in the sense, I'm not going to be that Olympian, yeah. you know, cyclist. And so better to realize that now and do something else. So you went into sales for a period of time. And then how did your journey kind of progress after you yeah. did sales? And then you got into some entrepreneur doing some startup, sure. doing things with the startup. So how did that go? Yeah. So I always, I, in looking back, and I'm sure this is a common theme against, right? Like most startup founder, entrepreneurial people, like even as a little kid, I always thought about starting my own business and doing stuff, right? And mm -hmm. so I became a technical recruiter after the sales. I just kind of fell into that. It was the early, early beginnings of the dot-com era. And um, 
I worked for a national company. We had an office in Texas. I had originally grown up in Texas, um, but had moved to California in middle school and had family in Texas. And I came to visit and fell in love with Austin specifically. And I wanted to transfer. And so I transferred offices and came here and met my, uh, became my best friend. And we just like, it was, Austin was really starting to grow technology company wise. And we would call these companies and they had no idea the name of the company we worked for. And we had this kind of aha moment over a beer or something like, you know, it's just, it's funny to think back young, <laughs> like how naive you are when you're young and you're like, ah. mm -hmm. we were like, we're giving away 90% of the money to this company that basically provides a phone for us. Like mm. the customer has, they're buying because they like you and me, like they trust us. And that's why they're buying, not because it says the name of the company on the phone. Right. And True. so we're like, we'll do it ourselves. So we just in the spare bedroom of his house started. Um, I used to joke later after I got married that I must've been a hell of a salesperson because he was married, <laughs> newly married, really young. They just got a house, had a mortgage, and I got him to convince his wife to quit his day job and start this technical recruiting company. And we did that, like you said, through the dot-com era and learned, you know, looking back a lot of just silly, dumb lessons as a young person, right? In, in, a, in an economy that was growing and you, like, almost despite ourselves, we were making lots of money, right? And mm. then the dot-com bubble burst and nobody needed recruiters anymore. And it was kind of like a okay, well now what? But I still, you know, I'm salesy guy and I love cars, right? I, and my ex-wife at the time, she said, well, you love Audis. Why don't you go try and sell Audis? And so that's how I got into the automotive space in mm -hmm. 2001. I started selling cars and unlike what you said earlier, uh, it is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Like it was, really? I learned that I did it for about seven, eight months, that first stretch. And yeah, it's very, a very difficult job and I give lots of credit to those people because you know it's what most people don't understand it's 100% commission like mm -hmm. literally 100% to the point where at that time we had what's called a mini where if you're a salesperson and you Devin beat you up down to like the price is nothing and they don't make any money you get a minimal amount as a salesperson and it was $50 really? and so like if I spent three days with you and you had beat me up and you finally bought the Jetta, I'd make $50, right? And it was just, mm. a, it's hard. It's a hard way to learn a living. And so that, that's how I got into the vendor side. And like you mentioned, I worked for Carfax for 12 years. And that was a great learning experience because it was a big brand, but not a really very small company. And they were just kind of pushing out into selling to dealers. They had been a consumer facing product and we're making this transition. And so I was the first person in the role that I had and grew with them for uh, like, I worked there uh, a little over almost 11 years. And mm -hmm. looking back now as a founder, there's so many things that I just kind of didn't realize I was learning, right? From a company that was growing and doing well, the things that you just see and looking back, so. No, I think that definitely makes it. No, I wanted to touch back. So you got into sales for a period of time and mm -hmm. even new car sales. Now I've never done car sales. I just like cars. I mean, <laughs> yeah. give you an idea. The first That's car I, that I ever drove, I drove in high school was a uh, 67 Camaro that me and my dad restored. Uh -huh. So I'm just, I wow. love cars. Now I also have completely opposite side, but I do have a VW. It's the old VW bus. It's a, has a bed that folds down in the background or the awesome. back. That's for the fun with the wife and the kid. So I, I'm just a, a car guy that yeah. love that. 
Um, but you know, you, so you do that for a period of time and say, okay, you know, while I like cars, car sales is not the most fun. And it's also incredibly competitive. That's why when they get on there, they're not really on your side to give you the best deal. Cause they want to get the most. Otherwise you don't be only big $50 right. after a while. Yes. Yeah. But you did that and said, okay, you know, tried the uh, few different sales job. Try, I did the recruiting dot-com bus that didn't work out, you know, then got over to car sales and said, okay, can't do car sales. Uh, you know, our car sales are not fun and they're, they're, they're a lot of hard work. Yeah. Get into Carfax for a period of time. And then I think you said you went through some life changes and decided that, you know, you were going to leave Carfax yes. and go to another startup. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I went through a divorce and if anybody is listening to the podcast, you can relate like, your brain isn't working probably 100% efficiently and made some decisions and left Carfax um, and went to a smaller technology company in the space. Um, again, a good life lesson, uh, really incredibly smart people learned a lot about product because they were launching a new product. So I got to be involved in that where it was, it was, it was a great, like, almost like a boot camp for startups because they had lots of money and they had a core product that was revenue generator. And then they were launching this new thing and they brought me in to help with that. And so I got to learn on somebody else's nickels, like what to do, what not to do as you grow and, and, and scale. Now the, the not startup piece of it is they had lots of money, right? So they could mm -hmm. make mistakes <laughs> and go down a path where, uh, as a startup founder, you can't normally do that. Right. Mm. So uh, yeah. Yeah. did that for a while. And like I said, I, I mentioned, you know, you touched on it in my intros that I, I went from uh, like, I love the auto space. Like I'm mm -hmm. like you, I'm a car guy. I'm passionate about it. And what I'm passionate about is car dealers are actually, they're very good people. Like when people bash on them, I always try and kind of pull, turn it down. Like, you know, when you look in a community, Typically, they're the largest employer in a community because they have so many staff. They give more to charity than anybody else in their community. I mean, how many of us have kids who's on a little league team that's sponsored by the local car dealer, right? Like they mm. do do a lot of good stuff. And so my frustration has always been um, kind of on how do we how do we in the technology space figure out how to use technology to make that process better and better for the consumer. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I launched a startup to help do that. And my startup was, uh, it was called sales dog. And the idea was it was a an application for salespeople inside the dealership that was a basically a game. And the idea was by playing this game, it would help them better understand engaging customers and their product, because this is the, the biggest problem. One of the biggest problems I think in the space is that they're not, there's not a lot of training for the salesperson, right? And so they're kind of thrown to the wolves. You as a consumer come in and you typically know more about the car <laughs> because you're super passionate about this mm -hmm. car. So you've spent eight, like the average time a consumer spends is like 80 hours online. Well, that salesperson, he's maybe spent five, he or she spent five minutes getting ready for you. So you're super prepared and they're not. And so the idea was to build an application to, to help that that was fun so they could do it. And then our secret sauce, we call that manage gaming. And so the manager could actually change it, right? So if you and I worked at the store, your games questions would be different than mine because our skill sets were different, right? Like you may, may need help in a different area. 
Um, and so went down that path and went into, got into an accelerator and built out an app and did all the stuff you're supposed to do in a startup that you think. Yeah. And it went sideways. <laughs> no, and, and not pouring any wound, but I think, or yeah. salt and wound, but I'd love to talk about that for yeah. just a minute in the sense of, you know, there are things that, you know, you can have a great, and I think, you know, just sitting there and explain, that makes sense. You know, you want to, as a consumer, you want a salesperson that has a good background. They know the car, they can tell you the benefits. They can tell you why get this upgrade or why now don't just tell me I need an upgrade because it's better. Like tell me why right. I need it or why should I get this car, you know, this minivan over this minivan or this truck or this car over this yeah. car. And half the time, to your point, the consumer spends so much time online, especially when it's not all out there. They've read the reviews, they've read all this and you've got hundreds of, or, you know, hundreds of different cars and options on the line. You're saying, I don't know all these things. So yeah. gamifying it and making it, you know, fun and interesting and incentivizing definitely makes sense. And so I can see why you got into the accelerator, raised a bit of money on it, but tell us a little bit kind of what did you, you know, what made it go yep. sideways or kind of what did yeah. you learn as it went sideways? And this is something that I, at first, when I, when it went sideways, I thought, oh, this is going to be bad for future. Cause I'm an entrepreneur. Like I was listening to one of your other podcasts and it was the guy from Cox. I can't remember mm. what, and he was like, now that I'm doing this, I can't imagine not, right? And that's kind of the thing. Like once you've been an entrepreneur, it's hard to visualize going back to work for somebody. Like I've done it a couple of times and it's, it works for a little while, but you get that bug, right? Um, the thing that I learned, and this is advice I would give any potential founder is don't go spend a bunch of money building something that you think, and the key word is you think people are gonna spend money on because that's what I did. You know, I thought it made sense. Like you said, makes total sense. But when I went to my potential customers and said, Hey, I have this thing. And even they, like, we got lots of perks for like, Oh, this is great. Like it looks cool. The app's functional. Right. But at the end of the day, nobody would write a check. Mm -hmm. Like when I would push and be like, okay, cool. You want to, it's $700 a month. Uh, yeah, no, or whatever the number. Right. And this mm -hmm. is the other thing that I would a learning lesson I took away from so one don't spend a bunch of money to build something that somebody's not going to actually write a check for and two you know I would, this is a yin and yang right like don't be so focused on making money which I know sounds so crazy counterintuitive and if I heard myself say that I'd be like you're bananas dude but like that's what I was so laser focused on that I couldn't just maybe take a step back and go, okay, let me have somebody try it for free. Mm -hmm. Right. And then see how or it works. A minimal amount, you know, and what I always, and I, I agree with you on all of that, you know, on the one sense, you need to make sure people, cause there's a difference between a something that's cool or something that's useful and something people are willing to pay for in the sense that they may think, yeah, that's a really good idea. I'd, I'd use it. And then you're like, well, would you pay for it? Not necessarily me, but I'm sure somebody <laughs> else out there would pay for it. And you're like, uh oh, yeah. we got a problem. And so I think, but I think that that's a real thing that you talk yourself into. Hey, it's a cool idea. You start to almost drink your own Kool-Aid because you get so enamored with the idea that you don't necessarily think, yeah. hey, would somebody actually pay for this? Does this have a business case? Yeah. Not just a, this is a cool product. That and you, let's be also on it. Like we're all bananas doing this, right? At some level, because you're like, we're doing what society tells us not to do. <laughs> So you have to fight, like, you have to have a little bit in that you anyways, like about your idea. Like if you're not passionate about it, it's 
startup is hard anyways, but if you're not, it, it is hard. Bad, and, you're I, right. and I always think there's a bit of naivety in the sense that, you know, if you're not passionate about it, you're, you're not going to make, and because, you know, startups are hard, there's a high or high failure rate. And yet we're bucking the current saying, yeah, I know there's a lot of failures, but I'm going to be the exception. And sometimes yeah. you are the exception. Sometimes and you have not. to, you but have I to do you that, have, to have that broken risk meter and willing to accept yeah. the, accept the, the, um, the risk and continue to move forward and, and do it anyway. So, and the other thing I think you touched on, I liked as well is, you know, sometimes you get there, you need to have money to make it or to keep a business going. And I think that sometimes that gets pushed aside, like, Oh, I'll, we'll, you know, we'll make money yeah. and we'll figure it out. But on the other hand, if you don't, if you become so focused on money, Hey, we have to make money. Now we have to do it right now that you yeah. sometimes don't give the product enough time to figure out what it's yeah. going to be. And that, that was the number one thing that, like it was a like the idea was great like i got obviously we got into accelerator we beat out a bunch of other companies because the idea was good but it, there was a chicken and the egg effect that mm. i needed to be able to say to a dealer and this is the the not money part that this would if i was going to do that again is i needed people using the tool to prove its validity to then go to people and say hey it really works it's worth the spend because I didn't have that, I was so focused on like, I need to make some money to eat that I couldn't get initial users to then prove, right? That's what I mean. Like I was in a, another startup, was it was kind of a, an eight week program where you come in with a basic idea and by the end of the eight weeks, you've got kind of something shelled out and each week you have an expert that tells you like finance, marketing. It was a great program here at a company in Austin. And one of the things the guy said to me in that, like, was so glad, like, if you're not making any money, it's a hobby. <laughs> like, you can call it whatever you want. You can have a web page. But at the end of the day, if you don't have paying customers, it's a hobby. So don't get me wrong when I say, like, I was super, don't focus on money. Like, money, <laughs> coming up with a revenue model is very important. But, but I think that you've got to do it in the time frame that yes. makes sense. I think that's what you're hitting on. If you yeah. you're so early on focused about and not that you shouldn't have a plan or you shouldn't say, yeah. hey, here's where we go about doing it. But if you're so focused on the money aspect that you never let the you never figure out what the product is going to be, yeah. what is where does it fit in the marketplace? What where does it make sense? Where does it not yeah. make sense? And if you never give it that a time to evolve, you can kill it, not because yeah. it's not a good idea, but because you didn't figure out. What are people willing to pay for it? What do I charge for this? Where are they going to use it? How are they going to use it? What yeah, is my pitch? Exactly. And so I think that's, you know, good lessons to learn yeah. as to why you can have a good idea that, as you said, can go sideways, not because it's not one that, you know, it's not a good idea, but because there are other aspects that impact it. And I think it's a good yep. lesson to learn from. Yeah. So now you did that. You went back to the dealership for a period of time. Yeah. And now I can't remember, are you still at the dealership or are no. you back to the no. time? For so, okay. yeah. So the dealership experience is what, gave birth to recall rabbit. Right. And I've okay. tried to take a lot of the lessons I learned from that first startup and push it into what we're doing today. And it's, it's worked. Right. And so, um, I was at a seven store dealer group. I was a manager overseeing their digital, everything to do with digital and some used car stuff. And I known about recalls from my time at Carfax. And all of a sudden I, just started kind of looking at our inventory and we had about 1600 cars on the used side between the seven different stores. And when I started looking at it and diving in, there were, I want at the time, I think it was about 27% of all the cars that we had had a recall that were not our own brand. 
Mm. So like it was Mazda and Hyundai's. So if we had a Chevy, 27% of them had recalls. And I was like, this is great. I mean, when you do the math, that was a lot of cars, right? And it shows on the Carfax or the auto check report. So consumers see it online. That's what was bubbling up to me. I was like, this is worrisome as a consumer and we need to figure this out so we can sell these cars, right? And so when I started asking how, like, what do we do? There was no answer. And it was this weird little moment of like, holy cow, this is a huge problem because one in four cars in the United States has a recall. It's between 65 and 70 million cars. Every day there are new recalls announced. Um, you know, uh, Honda just announced 2.6 million cars. So it, it's like every day and every manufacturer, like even Tesla has recalls. Like it doesn't matter what it is, there's recalls. And when I started digging, I realized there was no good way to connect dealers to fix this because you can only fix your own brand by law, right? So if I'm a Ford store, I can only fix Fords, which makes sense, right? If you think about like, I don't want the Ford guy fixing the Chevy airbag because he doesn't work on Chevys, right? I um, but there was no good way to connect them. And this is partially because of the infrastructure inside a dealership and the way people are incentivized and their compensation structure. A lot of people inside the dealership are paid commission. This is a weird thing that falls kind of in the cracks of that because no one can get directly paid for fixing it or getting it fixed. And it's their time. Like it takes time to take the car to the other dealership, bring it back. Well, who's going to pay for that person's time, right? Those are the little weird things that we help solve with our tool. And so I was like, okay, I see something. I'm not going to go spend a bunch of money. <laughs> I learned the lesson. So literally my first thing, I went to a, a somebody I'd worked with in the past and I said, here's my idea. Would you pay for it if I could come up with the idea? And he's like, yes, makes sense. And I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I literally did it manually. I got an Excel spreadsheet, went out to Auto Trader, Cars, Carfax, looked for Volkswagens. It was a Volkswagen store. Looked for them manually around their dealership. Then I would take the VIN and manually go to volkswagenrecalls.com USA and see if it has a recall. And if it did, I would then put the information in the spreadsheet, send it to the guy and say, okay, here are all the Volkswagens for sale around you that have recalls. Here's all the information you need on the car and the person to connect with, right? And so I did it manually for the first probably five or six customers. Cause I was like, if nobody's gonna pay for it, there's no point in building it. And if I'm not making enough money from it, no point in building it. And once I get to a point that I just can't do it anymore, it's frustrating, let's figure out automation. And so that's one of the, the lessons I learned from my first experience um, and it worked, right? And so still was- I, And I like the kind of the lesson from the story is, hey, you don't have to always dump in a ton of money, build it all. Let's see if we yeah. can do it manually, see if people will pay for it. Even if I have to take 10 times the amount of effort, time and money to do it, let's see if, you know, theoretically, if I were to get this to work and if people would pay for it, then I can figure out, okay, now let's go out, figure, yeah. figure out how to build it, automate it, make it nicer, make it polished, make it easier, make it more streamlined, yeah. but, you know, rather than just go out and build it all, let's try the, the, the minimalist route to see if it makes an yeah. I never like minimally viable product in the sense yeah. that in my mind, it always seems like that just is a code for we're going to put out a crappy product and see yeah. if people buy it anyway. Yeah. So I don't think that's the case, but I think, hey, let's see if there's a way that we can right. do without having to do a major investment such so they can get that same experience, see if it will work and also learn a lot. I think a yeah. lot of times you put it out, you do it manually say, oh, yes. this is what we really need to know. Yeah. This is what we really need to do. Yeah. And it's funny too, because I, I know I've watched a couple of your 
podcasts and there are a lot of us who are not technologists, right? And you can go down the path of, I think this is what I want to build. And we don't know, right? Like we think, oh, well, you just go back in a little room, you type a little something, boom, it comes up. It's easy, right? No big deal. And my CTO always is like, it's not hard at all. Yeah. I hate when you explain our product because you make it sound like it's super easy. There's a lot of hard work. (laughs) But so you can go down a path and one little mistake takes hours and hours to fix that you don't understand. And that's one of the the good things about being a technical recruiter is I quasi understand the development life cycle. But now as a founder, I'm much, I understand it much more deeply. And again, by doing it manually, you avoid all that. And it's easy to change and manipulate. And there are enough tools out there that you can figure out how to do stuff that you need to, if you've got a, a niche that you want to try and attack. So um, did the manual thing work? doing it nights and weekends, found somebody to help me build some automation, but not full automation. And I have a a good friend who I mentioned my best friend earlier that we were recruiters together, had our own agency. We both left that and went to work internally as recruiters for software companies. And he, he did that. Um, He's still doing recruiting. And one of the guys he worked for that was the vice president of development, we all became friends. Um, this is another piece of advice I might get. So, and he's going to, he'll hate it if he sees this, but, uh, we lovingly call him the dream crusher. Cause I'm an entrepreneur and you may know David and you've probably talked to enough. Like I'm always coming up with great, great ideas. Right. And he's a great sounding board. So I would always recommend like find somebody, you know, and really trust that can really kick you in the teeth. And you're like, okay. And he's one of those ones where he's like, this is the dumb idea. Or he pokes the holes in it. That's good. You're like, even if it's a bad a bad idea might work if somebody's helping you figure that out. Um, well, this other gentleman is my, he's, he's now my CTO, but he's my technical version of that, right? So as a non-technologist, when I think of an idea, I go to him and I'm like, how much would this take to really build? If I'm talking to somebody who's going to be a developer, what should I be looking for? And he's always been a great sounding board for that. And I came to him with this idea after I'd already built out some of it. And I said, look, we're here. I need to figure out how to get it to here to make it real. And he was like, I like this one, man. This one's actually a good one. I want to come on board. So he joined as my CTO and he's helped, his team has helped build out what we have now, which is a fully automated tool. We've got customers. I think since the first time I talked to you, you know, I'm in an office space now. When we first talked, I was still out of the house and uh, I started full-time last January, right before COVID. So on paper, not the best time to start your startup, <laughs> but we've actually, what we do for dealers actually help them during COVID make revenue. So it was a, it was kind of a good, a good time for us to, to start and grow. So. No, and I, I think that that's funny, you know, interesting. There's been a lot of startups during the time of COVID yeah. just because people have, you know, they're at home, either they're on lockdown, they're on quarantine, they right. have, they got laid off, they have other yeah. things, other motivations. They're saying, okay, I've got some time on my hands. I'd rather than go and look, you know, go and do work for someone else. Let's or see what we can do. And so yeah. it's been interesting how that. And I think it's one of those things, to, right? Like you got this time on your hands, you see things that are broken, mm-hmm. right? You're like, well, this kind of stinks. I don't want to do it. I think there's a lot of that too, that people have seen stuff that, oh, this could be done better. Yeah, which has been interesting. 
So, so now you know, that, that kind of brings us up to where you're at today. And there's always so many more right. things on the journey that I'd love to touch on. But yeah. um, given that we don't want to, I'm sure the listeners don't want to hear about <laughs> all of our side notes. So maybe yeah. with that, we'll jump to the two last or two questions I always ask at the end of each yep. podcast. So the first question I always ask, and you may have already touched on it, um, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made? And what did you learn from it? Yeah, um, I would, yeah, the, the spending money before, really having a good idea of what you're trying to accomplish. I think um, it's one of those best and worst because I learned from it, right? But it, it could be a, a killer, you know, depending on how big a project you're trying to do, you know, 70, $80,000 to build an app is not unheard of, right? Mm-hmm. And if you, that's a big chunk of change if you, uh, yeah, I think that's the biggest lesson I've taken away is really before, now you can you can spend money, but like before you go down too far, make sure what you're doing somebody's actually going to pay for, it. and that's a hard right because again, every startup person thinks, well, when Jeff Bezos started Amazon, nobody was going to buy books, and we all have to think that that's our thing, but you know there is you got to have some sense of realism, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, no, definitely makes sense, and I and I like that because you know it is. It, it's interesting and kind of a side note, but you touched on it is people think, you know, Oh, it's software. It should only take a programmer a few hours. It's not that big of a deal. And I've been on programs where I've seen companies literally spend millions of dollars on software. I've done, I've done several projects myself where at least in the hundreds of thousands and even just a simple product. Most of the time, unless it's drop dead simple and it's like, you know, one web page or one little tiny thing you can get it for cheaper. But if you have one of those apps and the interesting thing is, is, the simpler you make it is usually more expensive because it's almost counterintuitive because the more, the easier of a user experience is simpler and more yeah. straightforward that it's fluid, takes more time to make that user interface and that graphics and that flow all work together. It's yeah. much easier to build a really complicated, yeah. hard to use software that has tons of features, but doesn't make any sense. It's hard to use than it is to make that simple one. So definitely yeah. think that that's something for everybody to keep in mind. So as we, um, so now with that as the first question, let's jump to the second question, which is now if you're talking to someone that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Yeah. Um, maybe not have the, the dream crusher in your life, <laughs> but someone that you can go to and say here, like someone that's going to be real with you and honest about your idea, not in a negative way, but somebody, a good sounding board looking for that person in your life, whether that's another, like I am incredibly blessed because I've got a couple founders that I just reached out to on LinkedIn and I said, Hey, you're where I want to be in the auto space. Can we chat? Right. And they've been great at like, and it's interesting because they're very diametrically opposed founders of companies in their philosophy of growth and that stuff. So I've got two, but to be honest with you and say, that's not a good idea, or that's a great idea. And here's why, because there are holes that we all have, even as, you know, multi-time founders, there are things you miss that if you have somebody else, just like throw back at you, that would be my advice is. No, and even as a word of, because sometimes it's hard to find those people, but even what I found kind of along the lines is I'll write down, because I'm the kind of guy that I'll have 10 ideas before breakfast, and then I'll have another 20 throughout the day and 90% of them or even more are probably de- bad ideas. But what I'll do is I'll write the ideas down that I think might be good. I'll put it on a sticky note, put it on my desk and I'll, I'll leave it there. 
circle back in about a week and see if I'm still as excited a week after that I've had the idea. That's a good one. Was yeah. Before, yeah. Because, you know, giving that time and that, because every time you have a, an idea, you'll say, oh, that's a great idea. It's going to make lots of money. We're all going to be millionaires. And yeah. that's what everybody thinks. And sometimes it's right. But other times yeah. you get so excited about the idea that you never really stop to think doesn't make sense yeah. and doesn't work. So I would I also, think I think the other one for me too, is juxtapose, like, listen to yourself. Like, it is really hard to do this. And then you have to be committed, not just passion is the right word, but like you have to like sometimes even your friends and family, I'm sure like there's lots of fans. Like I know you were talking with somebody about raising and that whole like, well, if you can't even get your family to support you, why should we? I think that's the craziest thing. Like, cause your family's the first one that knows all your flaws, right? So they're mm -hmm. gonna be the ones that are like, I'm not giving you a dollar. Right. And you have to push through that and listen to yourself. And like, this is a good, I, I, and that's a hard thing to do, right. When you're going through it sometimes. So those are, those are my piece of advice. So, yeah. Well, awesome. Well, as we now wrap up the, the podcast, if people want to find out more about your, yeah. your business, your software recall rabbit, they want to be an employee. They want to be a investor. They want to be a customer. They want to be a client. They want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above. Yeah. What's the best way to reach out, contact you or find sure. out more. I would say uh, LinkedIn, always a good way. It's Stephen Granger, spelled with a P-H and no I. Um, and then our webpage, obviously, recallrabbit.com. All one word. Yep. All right. Well, I definitely cool. encourage people to reach out, connect up, find out more. So yeah. Well, thank you again for coming on the podcast. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your, uh, your own journey to tell and you'd love to be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to share it. Just go to inventiveguest.com and apply to be on the show. Two more things as a listener. One, make sure to click subscribe in your podcast player. So you know what? All of our awesome episodes come out. And two, leave us a review so other people can find out about all of our awesome episodes. Last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat, and we'd be happy to help. Well, thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. And wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you.